Hello, and welcome to the FT Advisor and Focus podcast in partnership with Wisdom Tree Asset Management, where we will be discussing governance, the G in ESG. ESG has risen sharply in popularity across both active and passive investments in recent years. But while many investors may recognize the E in ESG, environmental, would they be so sure about the G? Governance plays an important role in any business, and done well, it greatly enhances its investment credibility. So what do investors need to know? And how can it benefit from keeping a close eye on governance? With me here to discuss this today are Lydia Treiber, Research Director at Wisdom Tree Asset Management, and Diana Rose, Head of ESG Research at INSIC AI. Hello, both. Hello. Hi, Carmen. Hi. Um, Lydia, let's start with you. What role does governance play when it comes to ESG investing? What is important? What do investors need to know? So I think, you know, when you think about ESG, um, you really have to focus on the G. And corporate governance essentially refers to the process of decision making in companies and the processes through which those decisions are implemented. And if you think about, you know, the rules and procedures for countries and corporations, um, and they allow investors to screen for, you know, appropriate governance practices as they would for environmental or social practices. And really, a corporation's purpose and the role and makeup of the boards, the shareholder rights, and how corporate performance is measured are really core elements of corporate governance structures. And when we think about a sustainable business model, Governance is certainly at the heart of that. Uh, Now, the opposite of that, when we think about, you know, poor corporate governance practices, really they have stood at the core of some of the biggest corporate scandals uh, that we've seen historically. And if we think about recent scandals, you know, we can't forget about, you know, the Volkswagen emission test scandals or, you know, Facebook's misuse of data and you know all these incidences have caused significant financial damage to these companies and you know in the face of these you know missteps and you know the, the growing awareness of you know global diversity and income inequality corporate governance is really at the core of ESG now i think that the challenging bit is how to measure corporate governance and there's really four key areas that you know we, we really look at and it's really thinking about you know you know the structure and oversight if you think about you know the second bit being about code and values you know the third really about the transparency and reporting and another one that that a lot of times can be overlooked is cyber risk and systems all of these things are part of governance. And so, you know, it's a very important piece of a functioning company. And one of the things that you'll see when you think about, you know, how to measure corporate governance and the impact and for investors is that really different countries place different levels of importance depending on the governance frameworks that they have in place. And and this could vary. Uh, such as, you know, the board independence and shareholder democracy and disclosure and roles and responsibilities and the processes used for decision making. 
and the acceptable conflicts of interest. So there is differences across countries. And that's, that's why it's very important to understand, you know, how these different systems work and, and what's relevant to each country and specifically how certain companies rank in comparison to others within the same uh, industry, the same region, um, et cetera. Because all of these mean that ultimately being able to select companies that have strong corporate governance should also mean that there is more sustainable uh, business. It's a more sustainable business model that could lead to more sustainable earnings and long-term uh, performance for investors, really. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And Diana, let's, let's come to you. What trends are you seeing around governance at home and abroad? Um, just a second, sort of Lydia's point that governance is considered by our clients to be very much core to all businesses regardless of their sector, although it can, of course, vary by region. And we tend to see it weighted quite heavily, um, both by the ratings agencies and their methodologies, and also when asset managers are building more bespoke approaches. In terms of what is included in governance, I see it as a structure from kind of top leadership down to the day-to-day -day running and operational level of a business. So, as we all know, there are lots of frameworks out there that try to capture what this means to investors. And these are all structured a bit differently. Um, and that's partly due to the interrelationships with other ESG factors and particularly social ones. Um, at INSIG, we group the, the G into six issues, um, organizational purpose with a capital P, strategic direction, which considers opportunities and long-term value creation, board and executive management, risk management, including cyber, stakeholder and supply chain engagement, and then ethics, which includes tax, anti-corruption and bribery, and lobbying. So quite a good example of this at the moment is political donations and associations with lobby groups. And the issue here, and I think it's quite an important and emerging issue, is whether a company's donations and use of influence are in line with or conflict with its stated purpose or policies or other public positions. Um, and an example of this is given the global momentum behind net zero commitments, sitting rather uncomfortably alongside the terrifying power of the anti-climate change lobby, for example. I don't expect this, this issue is going to go away anytime soon. Um, and there are calls growing for, for greater transparency around this issue in particular. Okay, that's great. Thank you. I mean, it might be it might be a good idea for our viewers at this stage to just quickly explain what your company does, because it's probably not as well known as Wisdom Tree um, might be. Yes, of course. Um, so in SIG AI, we apply software solutions to help investors to unpick ESG ratings and corporate disclosures to make better informed and more evidence-based decisions. So we help our clients build bespoke ESG scoring models, particularly ones that disaggregate the E, the S and the G. And we also have a research platform built on a huge library of corporate annual reports and ESG documents overlaid with machine learning tools to help to take some of the pain out of ESG research and due diligence. 
Okay, great. That's that's helpful. Thank you very much. Now, Lydia, let's come back to you. Um, you've told us about governance and why it's important, but how can investors benefit from governance considerations in their investments and how can a focus on governance be part of a wider kind of push for good? So, I mean, I think the best way to address it is really focused on, you know, this growing awareness that we're seeing in academic research that's supporting the benefits of integrating governance considerations in uh, investments. And, you know, I touched on this earlier, but uh, an example is, you know, gender diversity uh, and equity. And this is really high profile right now in terms of a governance issue. And there's, you know, many institutional shareholders that are really demanding better representation of women on corporate boards and in executive ranks. And, you know, they're demanding equal compensation and mobility of these women and people of color. And, you know, we think about, you know, this uh, research, uh, and, and I've read recent research from, for example, S&P Global, and, you know, what their research revealed was that firms with more women on their boards of directors and in their C-suites had higher or greater financial performance than, you know, less diverse companies. And, you know, this is a clear example of how, you know, having, you know, a strong uh, corporate governance and focus on issues that are very important to society as a whole could also mean you know, long-term, you know, better performance for a company and for those investors that buy these companies uh, within their investment portfolios. And another example, if if we just think about lack of good corporate governance, uh, we think about, you know, the, the recent issues with WeWork and how, you know, there's been a lot of scrutinies uh, for their lack of leadership, accountability and oversight and and there was clearly a lot of conflicts of interest. And it's interesting because WeWork has this, you know, dominance in this co-working field. And, you know, a lot of times investors uh, fall into this uh, trap of thinking, you know, companies that are they're too big, that they're too big to fail in these very important areas like corporate governance. And and the reality is that there there isn't really a company that's too big to fail. And and if you have, you know, these key risks, and you know, obviously E, S, and G are very important areas that highlight risk for companies. Uh, and and I think if we we lean on the G, that that just shows the importance of it and the lack thereof having you know strong negative financial implications uh, for a company and for those that invest in it. If we think about uh, in fixed income. Uh, ESG issues present, you know, material credit risks uh, for both corporate, you know, companies, as well as, you know, sovereign debt issuers, so governments. Uh, and, you know, with, you know, debt issuance itself being, you know, a significant part of the investment market, it's, it's significantly greater than equity issuance, for example. You know, bonds uh, are increasingly a source of, you know, corporate financing, and really, credit investors are seeing this opportunity to really exert themselves in a meaningful way over issues with ESG and specifically, you know, disclosure practices, which are very important for uh, firms um, that are tracking, you know, these ESG measures 
but also, you know, just from a, a disclosure standpoint to understand how companies are uh, managing all of these risks. Uh, so ultimately, good governance supports, you know, companies' reputation and potential investors have more trust in these companies. And ultimately, it results in more capital flowing into the company, potentially lower costs for them to borrow. And, you know, ultimately, good corporate governance shows a company's direction and, and business integrity. And ultimately, it could lead to stronger customer loyalty. And, and again, back to the, the long-term um, strength of a company and, and the long-term return for investors, ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's talk a little bit about screening and stewardship. Um, how do investment index providers screen for governance, Lydia? Can you talk us through the due diligence process? So I can I can say, for example, um, for example, WisdomTree, we are an ETF provider and we have uh, portfolio managers that um, manage portfolios on our behalf. And for example, on the stewardship front, it, it's it's a matter that's very important for us and the portfolio managers that we hire. So um, you know, voting and engagement are activities, for example, um, for us are conducted by um, our portfolio managers. And ultimately, when we select portfolio managers, we make sure that they are adhering to, you know, the principles of active ownership and that they're exercising the right to vote on issues that, you know, are, are submitted from, you know, a shareholder vote uh, of promoting, you know, this good ESG policy and ensuring good governance. Um, so, th so this is something that's that's very important, making sure that there is um, a good framework that's put in place uh, so that there is strong stewardship, even uh, on the passive side. Um, so, so this is just, you know, kind of a, a general overview of how um, the portfolio managers are able to, again, use very, um, well-known services. So typically what we see in the industry is, uh, for example, portfolio managers might use a third party to help support some of this voting across a lot of the, the, the companies that they're uh, holding within the portfolios. So just to kind of point out an example, there's institutional shareholder services, very well known. They're an expert in proxy voting and ultimately, they provide advisory and proxy voting services and recommendations um, to vote and, and, and report on, on the voting that they do on behalf of investor portfolios. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, I mean, the one thing about passive investing, I suppose, is that you can't typically divest from a company like active investors can. So arguably, you have less control over the companies and your involvement with them. So what do you actually do when you detect a governance issue, Lydia? So I think, I think you've, you've rightly pointed out the difference between active and passive. So active, clearly there is, um, there is it, it's not necessarily rules-based as it is with passive. So um, if a company uh, or, or a portfolio manager on an active portfolio uh, decides that they would like to remove a holding because of uh, specific reasons, they can ultimately remove it at any point in time during the month. 
the next day, etc. Now with passive, um, there are rules that are put in place. And what that means is that there is transparency to how the portfolio is going to be invested. And when those rules are breached, then ultimately when the portfolio rebalances, those holdings that breach those rules, and those rules include you know, if, if a portfolio is designated as an, a sustainable portfolio, an ESG uh, designated portfolio, there are rules typically that the, the, the ETF provider will put in place to protect um, the investor from um, companies that breach those um, specific criteria that have been put in place. And so if they do breach criteria, um, and this is all integrated, whether it's in um, ratings from uh, large or, or from, from rating providers such as MSCI, Sustainalytics, um, there's Reuters as well that provides uh, ratings. So there's a number of companies that provide ratings, and they look at a lot of factors, um, including the company's commitment to these ESG, uh, um, ESG uh, initiatives. And when those rules are breached, they would fall out of the portfolio. So it, it's less opinion. It's less um, vague. It's very much rules-based. Uh, so, so if the, the actual portfolio uh, would see a breach from a company, then it would rebalance and remove uh, that specific company from the holding at the point of rebalance. Okay, thank you. Um, Diana, um, what would you say is the role of ESG due diligence in passive funds? So, of course, it depends on the fund and what strategies they use in terms of peer exclusion um, all the way through to sort of ESG integration and engagement and influence. Um, but I would argue that there is a role for for specific due diligence beyond relying on the ratings providers, as thorough as they are. Um, overall in the ESG space, public scrutiny is growing and best practice is starting to emerge, even though it's still quite early days. And I think for passive funds that comes down to this transparency and consistency and moving towards engagement um, that Lydia's talked about. Um, now, when it comes to proxy voting, obviously the fund managers need to, to vote in line with the ASG policies that they're selling the fund on. And in order to do you know, any, any voting or other engagement or shareholder resolutions, then I think there is a really, really important role for due diligence and research. And that just has to be done um, ideally independently uh, in a in a unique way to that fund, and and specific to the company, on how they manage their risks, impacts, and opportunities, what they're reporting on, what they have been reporting on, consistency, gaps, um, materiality, and what best practice looks like for their for their industry. So, that's that's our stance um, at Insig, and that's why we focus on um, this database of corporate disclosures and making those available to investment managers so that they can conduct their own sort of proprietary research right down to, to disclosure level to understand um, where the gaps are 
and to drive change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's talk a little bit about a little bit more about that data. Um, we know this is a very complex area, um, but in terms of data, I mean, how is it actually being used to screen companies? And is the data we currently have is that actually comparable? So, some of the data around the more conventional governance metrics, like remuneration and compens- uh, composition and role of committees, those are quite um, relatively available data points and quite reliable, at least in Europe and the States and the UK, thanks to regulation and an audit of annual reports. Then I would argue that in our keenness to quantify things, we are tending to fix on data points or proxies that can actually be a bit misleading or even counterproductive to the change that you know we all want to see. So I'd argue that you know, counting the number of women on the board um, is not necessarily a meaningful metric. Um, and what would be more thoughtful and considered in the long run would be looking at a company's policy for like a relevant and diverse talent pipeline. Um, generally speaking, data around the more nuanced issues uh, that maybe start to overlap a bit more with the E and the S in ESG are much far harder to find. Um, either directly from corporate disclosures or from third parties. So, for example, data around supply chain oversight is notoriously challenging to track down. And that, to me, is a big concern because this is where, as I'm sure you you know, a lot of uh, companies' impacts are are hiding. Um, Different ratings providers, of course, take different approaches to collecting data Um, whether that's from company disclosures, questionnaires, third-party providers, and then they also aggregate it differently. So it's very hard to compare two ratings providers um, against each other on one company. Um, And in terms of making things comparable, year on year, things are changing. And disclosures are growing a lot. Um, I think it's important to look at how companies present themselves in the public domain over time and against their peer group. And there's a real danger that unless companies are able to be held to account, you know, greenwashing is all too easy to do. And that, that you know, can happen with long-term targets and these sort of vaguer, vaguer promises. So there's a lot of anticipation around the convergence of ESG standards and mixed opinions about what the benefits or otherwise that this will bring, because we don't want to oversimplify things. But my sense is that with governance, because a lot of issues are core to many sectors, that that standardization will will be necessary and um, and help to drive comparability between data. Yeah, thanks for that. That's I mean, so it's a fascinating space. It really is. And um, I know it's notoriously hard to standardize ratings, but also some people, as you seem to suggest, um, say that, you know, it would limit competition in the space, but maybe there is a case for a standardization on the, the G of ESG. Um, now, I'd like to kind of talk a little bit about what's happening at the moment. 
and particularly um, the kind of geopolitical issues we're facing um, in Europe. Um, now, Diana, staying with you, um, what lessons have we learned to date from the war in Ukraine, if any? So, um, I think it's easy to want to make sense of the world at a time like this and to pin some meaning on the crisis in relation to ESG. And that's whether you're an advocate or a total skeptic. Um, and there's no doubt that the shockwaves of what's unfolding are rocking our assumptions on what sustainable investment looks like and how responsible businesses should be responding to something like this. Um, there are no easy answers. And if anything, I'm taking this as a reminder of how complex and interconnected the ES and the GR, um, and also how relevant. ESG is never going to stand still. It's never going to be a perfect answer. It's actually quite an immature space, and it's going to have to keep evolving along with the world. Um, we saw through the pandemic, and we're seeing now in Europe, and this won't sadly be the last crisis that we face, there's really important debate happening about you know, what responsible business and sustainable investment looks like. So this is, I think, a very challenging time for corporates with interests in Russia and Ukraine and investors alike trying to make good decisions. But I, if we can take a positive, um, not so long ago, investors might have just worried about their exposure to countries with downgraded ratings and now we're having a discussion on the role that they can play in driving positive outcomes. So I don't think we can take any lessons yet, um, but just keep having honest and thoughtful conversations about what this means to all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, now, there has, however, been some criticism that asset managers have relied too much on data analytics firms and should have done more kind of detailed analysis themselves. And maybe they would have anticipated downgrades such as the MSCI's ESG rating of the Russian government from B to triple C on the 8th of March. Um, is there an over-reliance by asset managers on data analytics firms, Lydia? So I think that the, the, the question that you've posed is quite... Um, Quite a topical um, question that's um, that's quite complex. Um, ESG considerations to Russia um, are certainly not simple, um, and if we think about it, you know this is a live and real issue that's you know rooted in you know global politics, as well as um, as when you're thinking about from a corporate level, um, the corporate per perfor uh, performance really, and, and all of the other um, ESG issues and ethical issues that we can clearly point out with what's happening uh, in the current situation uh, in Ukraine. Now, if we take a step back and we think about, you know, these data providers, you know, Sustainalytics, um, they reported, you know, back in, in 2014, you know, carving out, you know, event assessments 
that were related to the annexation of Crimea you know, back in 2014. And they also um, reported as well, you know, event assessments from the intensification of the conflict in Eastern Ukraine in 2018. And also looking at recent, you know, morning star analysis of, you know, sustainable emerging market equity funds, you know, sustainable funds did show lower exposure to, you know, Russia than non-sustainable funds. And, you know, you, the, the number quoted was around 66% less exposure uh, to Russia than the overall, you know, category average. And, you know, when we think about, you know, Russian companies um, in general, there really is a large uh, portion of Russian companies that have high ESG risk. Uh, and we think about those, you know, associated with fossil fuels. And now thinking, you know, uh, you know, at, at other providers, you know, Morningstar, thinking Sustainalytics, Sustainalytics also have highlighted that there is a high proportion of Russian companies that are listed as having high and severe ESG risk. So I think the, these things point out to the complexity of the ESG world and the different options uh, that are available today for investors that are looking to align their investments with their specific ESG goals and values. And if we think about, you know, separating um, the universe a little bit uh, more broadly, there is very much um, a number of investments that are starting to develop on the ethical investment themes where investors can choose to only invest in companies that align themselves with the moral values that an investor has. There's also another camp of investment options for investors that are a little bit more broad, and it might not be specifically aligned to specific moral or ethical standards for that specific investor, but it's more about responsible investments. And these are really seeking to achieve the best long-term returns uh, for investments by managing these key ESG risks within a client's portfolios. And I think that that's something to keep in mind. And if we think about ways that, um, for example, passive ETF providers can help um, align themselves with, with um, the values and the goals of different clients, you know, there are ways to remove holdings such as, you know, norms-based exclusions that um, remove um, holdings based on sanction lists or screening through standard screening, such as excluding companies that might violate or at, or at risk of violating commonly accepted international norms and standards, such as those outlined by the United Nations Global Compact Principles or the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights or the Organization of Economic uh, cooperation and development guidelines for multinational enterprises. So there's a lot of different ways that an investment can be constructed to better align itself with um, clients' goals, and that's that area is evolving. It's it's an area that's that's becoming more important for investors, and 
investment companies are really trying to address that that you know the desire to really incorporate ESG within the standard you know investment process and it's becoming increasingly more important and as we see more solutions for clients come to market it's also very important for clients to communicate exactly what goals they're looking to align themselves with because that way um, companies can also uh, adapt the different tools and solutions to better cater to um, the types of uh, goals that they're looking to achieve from an ESG standpoint. So th this space is growing uh, and, and I think there's a lot of room to continually improve it and better align it to what ultimately um, investors are trying to achieve with their uh, portfolios and, and, and the impact that their investments are making on society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this leads me to my last question, um, and uh, and that is about advice and how can advisors approach governance with their clients, and how is it then incorporated into their investment process, Lydia? So I think I think that's an important question. I think that the key thing is about education. I was reading an article recently that was highlighting um, how you know there's a large uh, percent of um, people that are starting to uh, increasingly recycle and take a lot of steps towards uh, making their contribution to the climate change goals. But when it comes to their knowledge on potential investments that could help support their ESG values and goals, there was a huge knowledge gap in terms of you know, what's available, and you know how they can align themselves from the money that they put to work in companies because you know if you think about it you know if we create these standards for companies in terms of how they should be you know managing their business how they should be thinking about you know the climate impact that their companies are having when we think about the resources the scarcity we think about you know general um, environmental, social, and governmental impacts of each individual company, there, there is a lot that could be done. And the more that um, investors are educated on different ways that they could put their money to work and have an influence on companies and, and an actual impact on how these companies are run, that's how we're going to start to see change. Clearly, it, it's not just by companies because it's, it's something that is going to have to happen at the governmental level. And we're starting to see that through a lot of these different initiatives um, that we're seeing um, in Europe and, and in the U.S. and globally. But, you know, in educating investors and giving them options for their uh, portfolios to select um, more ESG-friendly solutions, this is how um, advisors are going to be able to move clients um, or support clients as we see this increasing shift towards um, investors being much more ESG aware and demanding much more from their investments than just, you know, outperformance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and of course, um, I believe the government is already working on new rules for advisors to, to have to kind of broach that question with their clients um, as well in the advice process. Um, now, last question for you, Diana. Um, what are the perils of ignoring ESG, do you think? That's a big question as well. Um, I think that that's hard to predict. Um, we've seen some real scandals emerging 
over the last few years, particularly around governance. And sometimes things that might on the surface look like an environmental or social um, disaster actually do come down to governance. Um, so I, I would argue that the perils are quite high, the risks are quite high. Um, and, and it would be short-sighted to ignore them. And the benefits are still to be seen. Um, I think it's, it, it is hard to quantify these things, but um, I'm certainly keen to see this momentum in ESG uh, carry on and that its potential for, for benefit um, and driving change in the way we want to see and moving the needle um, that that carries on. So I will, will keep watching this space. <laughs> um, and I'm sure there'll be, there'll be plenty of um, ups and downs along the way. Absolutely. That sums it up perfectly. Well, thank you very, very much for your time um, today, both of you. It's been a really insightful, um, great conversation and a very, very fascinating and important topic, I believe. Um, thank you for listening. Please join us again next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.